uh, I believe kids can go to Children's Church. And Matthew, turn it over to you. Good morning, everybody. It is a privilege and a pleasure to be here before you again this week. We're going to be back in 1 Thessalonians. I know when you heard Pastor Tim wasn't going to be here, oh, yay, we get a break. No, sorry. Uh, I know those younger than me can't relate to this, but I remember growing up hating the summer reruns. Okay, now with streaming services, you don't have to deal with that anymore. But hopefully this is not just a rerun. So let's, let's go before our Lord and pray for his blessing on this sermon. Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for the fact that you do promise to cleanse your children, to draw them to you, to make them into the image of your son, Jesus. We pray for that blessing this morning through the ministry of your word, that you are proclaiming your message to your people during our gathered worship this morning, that you are pleased and glorified, and that your people represent you well, are more sanctified to be more like their Savior so the world can see you better through what we do here this morning. We pray for that blessing in his holy name. Amen. So hopefully by now your Bibles will fall right open to 1 Thessalonians. You're getting close to the end. Pastor Tim was telling me he's roughly around three dozen sermons in, so you guys should, should know the drill by now. We're picking up actually the last few verses you just covered of chapter 5 there, 16 through 18. So just to give you a little bit of backstory, why this unusual selection, so I actually, I'm one of the preachers, I'm not the primary preacher at my home church, so I kind of fill in intermittently throughout the year. So about two years ago, I started First Thessalonians and kind of plugged it when I had the chance and just finished it. Again, it was only about 15 sermons spread out over a couple of years as I had the privilege to do so. Just finished the book this past, this past month. So this is all very fresh in my mind. I mentioned that to Pastor Tim when I, he asked me to fill in this morning. And so I thought... We talked about it, thought it would kind of complement what he's doing well. Because he has the privilege of being here week after week, he's drilling down into a lot of details. I, for example, to get some context, I made sure I watched his last couple sermons on giving thanks. He's able to spend two sermons just on that. So because of kind of dive bombing in and out as I was for the last two years, I had to go zoom out a little bit, take a little bit more of a 10,000-foot view on a lot of these passages. So the hope is, the prayer is, that by zooming out and looking at 16 through 18 all together, we can kind of peel back some of the layers, some of the threads, some of the thought process that's linking all three of those together in a way that might have been less obvious when you were taking things at the smaller level. So that's the goal. Maybe it's just a bunch of repeat of what you already heard, and then maybe that's just God reinforcing and helping us grow. But my prayer is there will be some new insight, new edification through all this. I will also mention, when I got to preach on this passage the last time, we had a visiting pastor from Haiti whom we support, who was in town giving us an update, sitting right in the front row, and let me tell you, it is a joy to preach when you have a Haitian pastor up front giving you the encouragement. So I don't know if somebody wants to wear that hat for your church today, but it's appreciated, okay? All right, so... I'm not sure how Pastor Tim has done this in the past, but I thought it would be best to start out by situating our passage in the context of where it falls in the book as a whole. Okay, so let's take a look at where we are in the book of 1 Thessalonians. 
If you don't know this, again, I know Pastor Tim has given at least some of this, if not all, but this was a book to a very new group of believers. They had only been saved for a little while before Paul and his buddies got kicked out of Thessalonica. We only know for sure that he was there three weeks, probably a little longer, but not much. When he's used to spending a year, year and a half, two years in a new church he would plant before he moved on. Very new believers, very much in need of a lot of discipleship that Paul and his buddies would have otherwise done in person. So put yourself in that mindset. Imagine when you first got saved. Imagine somebody said, here's the gospel of Jesus Christ. You accept it joyfully. You're all excited. You want to make this your new identity, your new life. And then say, it says, see ya, good luck. Figure it out. Now that wasn't what Paul and his companions intended. They were kicked out of town. But these believers were very much left on their own. So the purpose of this letter was very much meant to be all about discipleship. It's meant to fill in the gaps for what they didn't have time to do the first time, that they would have otherwise done in person. So the first three chapters is a lot of reassurance, reassuring them that they were for real. Back then there were a lot of hucksters that would go around giving false religions, getting people all excited, gathering lots of money, taking up a collection and skipping town. They wanted to make sure that they didn't believe that this was what happened to them, that they hadn't been taken, okay? They wanted to reassure the Thessalonians in the middle of their suffering as well as the Thessalonians' suffering that, no, your faith is real. The fact that you're suffering well is proving this is the real deal, and you can put confidence in this. You don't need to be discouraged. And then also, you see a lot, especially in chapter 3, a lot of Paul and his companions pouring out their heart about how much they missed them and wanted to be there, wanted to finish what they started, okay? You get three chapters where there's not really a lot of commands. If you zoom out and take this book as a whole, that should really strike us. Wait a minute. He takes three chapters. It's not until chapter four that he really digs in and starts addressing the issues that were the occasion for the letter. If we're thinking about how we disciple Christians, how we bring people on board, how we build up others' faith so they are strengthened to go out and make disciples of their own and continue advancing the kingdom, it's important to remember the example we get from Paul and Silas and Timothy here of investing a lot in that relationship, building up faith, prompt, restore, I shouldn't say restoring, reinforcing the promises that they were given through Christ, making sure that they are confident in who they are in Christ and in who they are in the body of Christ before they get down to the do's and don'ts. It's not that one is important and the other and one is important, the other isn't. They both are important, but you need both. I don't know about y'all, but a lot of people I know, they go to church and it's, okay, pastor, all that theology sounds great, but just tell me what to do. What do I do Monday morning when I go back to work? How do I apply this? Application, that's that word that people love all the time. What's the application? Got to understand, we got to grow in the identity in Christ, build up the theology first, The doing flows out of that. And yes, there are the doing parts of Scripture we do need to pay attention to. But notice, every one of these epistles you look at, pretty consistently in the New Testament, the epistles start with theological foundation, then what we do in light of that. Okay, And that's no exception here in this book. So chapters 4 and 5, we get to the actual discipleship in terms of what to do. The discipleship building up, now the discipleship, what to do. They address some issues. You guys have talked through those. And so now we're to this last section here of some final discipleship that Paul and his companions are doing. 
Specifically, this passage is a third of four sets of instructions that you get in this passage kind of what to do going forward. He addressed the immediate issues. Now what do we do going forward from here? Okay, And so he's looking at four groups specifically. How do you approach church leadership? Then how do you approach and deal with those who need discipleship? And by the way, if you break that passage down, there's parallels to chapter 4 and the first half of 5, the theological issues and behavior issues he was dealing with are kind of embedded in those couple verses. Now, our passage today is looking at how they're going to disciple within themselves. How are they going to grow? What do they need to pay attention to to be growing personally? And then that next passage is what Pastor Tim's going to get into you here over the next few weeks about spiritual messengers and messages. So during the last few weeks, last two weeks specifically, you guys were looking at thankfulness, and then obviously the other two commands in the weeks before that, you guys were looking at how to cultivate what is being commanded in these verses. Okay? I love Pastor Tim's model of the putting off and putting on, right? Putting off, complaining, putting on thankfulness, right? Very useful, very practical. So this week, what we're going to do is we're going to zoom out, however, and link all three of these commands together. They are all meant to be taken together. If you like peel back the Greek and all that stuff, they're all meant to go together. They aren't meant to just be one at a time. There's a reason, and of all the things that we ought to know, like these are pretty obvious commands, right? You shouldn't have been surprised. What, we're supposed to be thankful? We're supposed to rejoice? What's this about God? That wasn't, so hopefully no one was taken aback. Nothing was new. There's a reason of all the pretty obvious things we know as Christians that Paul and his companions picked these three and phrased them the way they did and couched them the way they did that reveals a whole lot about what he's trying to say about our day-to-day faith. And that's what we're going to look at today. As they're wrapping up here, they're looking at trying to leave the Thessalonians with some words that are going to help them handle the situations ahead of them so they can lead victorious lives in Christ without their spiritual fathers there to guide them by the hand. Okay? As with so much of Christianity, the focus is ultimately not on the behaviors. That's your hint. That's your spoiler alert. The focus is not so much on the behaviors, but on the hearts that lead to the behaviors. Okay? So to kind of get our brains working here, start things off, I want to have us ponder a question, kind of reflect on this throughout the sermon, and this will kind of help dig into this a little bit, and that is, what is it that changes my attitude? What happens in life that changes my attitude? Now, we probably know this, but circumstances shouldn't dictate attitude, right? Our attitude should be something that's more firmly rooted, that our circumstances don't move us when things happen. But we all know that that's not necessarily how life always plays out, right? Have a bad day at work, have an issue with a family member, have an unexpected surprise financially, what have you. All these things happen, and if we're not careful, our attitude changes. It's not just that we have to respond to circumstances. Of course we do that. But the attitude that we're living our life with shouldn't be changing. So therefore, our attitude needs to be rooted in something that transcends circumstances. Think about that. If I have an unexpected financial setback, big medical bill, what have you, and suddenly my attitude changes, that reveals to me that part of my attitude was rooted in my financial security instead of somehow in Christ. If I have 
a disagreement with a family member. If we're buttonheads and it's you know, serious, we're actually angry at each other, something that, bi- that big a deal, and my attitude changes, that reveals to me that somehow my attitude was rooted in my family. Should I love my family? Should they be a high priority in my life? Of course. But my attitude can't be rooted in them. Can't be rooted in anything in this life other than who we are in Christ. Remember, the attitude has has to be rooted in something that transcends circumstances because we're trying to be used by God in this life rather than just be about this life. That make sense? This life is just the vehicle for how God is trying to use us in the world. It's not really who we are and what we're about. Okay? So today then, we're going to be looking at how to have an attitude that endures all circumstances. Sound like a big ask? Well, today's text is giving us just three simple commands, but if we follow them, it will literally change our lives. Sound like I'm overselling? Well, let's, let's let God's Word do the work here. So what are those commands? Read along with me. It should be very familiar to us by now. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18. It says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. All right. So you're probably pretty familiar with these commands after Pastor Tim's preaching recently. But first, I do want to revisit them briefly to get our bearings. Maybe there's some new things you haven't heard, but at least to give us some context for what we're talking about here. So first of all, it starts with the command, rejoice always. Now, this rejoicing is an important subject in the Bible. In case you don't know this, it's mentioned about 234 times in the Bible. I'd say that qualifies as important. Repeated emphasis. And this shouldn't be a surprise because the Christian life should be characterized by rejoicing should not be rejoiced by pessimism, should not be characterized by moping, shouldn't be grumpy. A grumpy Christian is an oxymoron. Okay, That shouldn't be our attitude. That's a, that's a red flag, something is wrong. But why? Okay, rejoice. You know, we should rejoice, but why should we rejoice? Pretty basic question. What are we rejoicing in? Well, as you survey Scripture, there's many different reasons given for rejoicing. Many, many. However, it is quite significant that the most common reason to rejoice is to rejoice in, you know what? The Lord. The most common reason given in Scripture to rejoice is rejoice in the Lord. That exhortation is all over the Bible. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, I want to focus on what that is, okay? Rejoicing in who God is. And notice, first of all, that this is not some detached, stoic joy. Okay, we hear this is a common thing. I hear this all the time. Matter of fact, I have a friend who lives in this area who I see that put this on Facebook about every week. (laughs) Okay? Talks about, you hear this, choose joy. You familiar with this? This philosophy that's out there right now. And it's not altogether wrong. This choose joy philosophy is saying, no matter what my circumstances, I could have whatever attitude, so I'm going to choose joy, despite whatever my circumstances are. Sounds harmless at face value, right? But that's not 
really what God's calling us to do. He's not calling us to be joyful despite circumstances. He's not telling us to ignore our circumstances and be joyful instead. No, the rejoicing in the Lord is a joy rooted in Christ and God's sovereign plan for us that outweighs circumstances. It's a way to find joy in the circumstances, as hard as that seems at times. No matter what else happens in life, first of all, first and foremost, we are in Christ if we are one of His, and therefore we'll always have a reason to rejoice, even in persecution. Okay, Even in persecution, that just proves that we're in Christ, and therefore can rejoice. Now, I want to make sure this is balanced. This doesn't detract from the reality that there is grief in this life. Like even here in this letter, when they're telling people to rejoice always just one chapter earlier, what were they talking about? How it's important to grieve, but not as those with no hope. When talking about looking ahead to Christ's return and gathering of his saints. Okay, there is a place in Christianity for grief. It's not that we have to ignore those sorts of experiences. There is grief in this life, yet even in the grief, joy can be found in Christ. You see how that's different than just, okay, I know this is terrible, but I'm going to choose joy anyway. It's a different philosophy. It's a different approach. And ultimately one that uses those circumstances to glorify God instead of letting them just be miserable. We want to glorify Christ in all things. We can rejoice even in the depths of grief. So, continuing in that vein, the next command, then, is we are told to pray without ceasing. Again, you guys have talked about this, but I should mention prayer is one of the most essential Christian disciplines, and it's mentioned only about 334 times in Scripture. And Scripture is replete with examples of God doing mighty things through people's prayers and as people regularly praying to Him. It's just all over the place. Interestingly enough, Outside of the Psalms, prayer is not actually commanded that often in Scripture. Do you know that? They don't actually command people to pray. This is one of the rare exceptions in our passage today where people are actually commanded to pray. But it's not because, whoops, or this isn't a big deal. Again, it's all over Scripture. It's just a given. It's assuming anybody who's in the faith sees all these examples of prayer and just figures, duh, I should be doing this too. Look at all the mighty things God does through prayer. Of course I should be praying. It shouldn't even have to be said. It's just what we do as Christians. And it needs to be something we bank on and rely on, I think in a way that a lot of Christians shortchange. Okay, especially at the down-to-earth, what do we do in our ministry, in our personal lives, as a body and as individuals? I think we shortchange the power of prayer a lot. I can't speak to this congregation, I don't know, but just the church in general, what I observe, I think we shortchange the power of prayer. It's a famous story. I'm going to go to extra-biblical sources. I want to make sure I pick authoritative ones, so I'm going to use Spurgeon. He seems like a good one to start with. Charles Spurgeon, a famous story, maybe you've heard this, where a group of young pastors were visiting him in his giant church that he would preach, carry his loud voice without a microphone to 2,500 people a week. They were, of course, these young, naive pastors, all impressed, wanting the tour of the whole building. And so he's showing around, and after they get done looking at the sanctuary, the, 
they're, of course, very impressed. And so he then says, all right, now I'd like to show you my boiler room. Of course, these naive young guys say, what? Why do we want to see the guts of the building? Who cares about that? So he goes downstairs, and as it turns out, his boiler room was the room downstairs where people would regularly gather to pray for him, for his sermons, for his ministry, for the whole church, sometimes as many as 100 people at a time in there praying continually. You understand, Spurgeon got it. He knew the fuel that provided the heat for his ministry was the prayer of his people. Matter of fact, he made this very explicit. One time, another pastor asked him, what's the secret to your success, Spurgeon? There are all kinds of other preachers, some of whom are gifted. Why is your ministry so successful as opposed to all these other guys? Spurgeon could have gone on for hours. He did all kinds of things that were very faithful and wise. But you know what his one terse response was? My people pray for me. That was the secret to Spurgeon's success, and he knew it. So first of all, gut check here, I can say this because I'm the guest. Do you pray for your ministry? Do you realize that this ministry will grow or fall on the prayers of its people? Not that God isn't sovereign, but he is sovereignly chosen to work through the prayers of his people. Do you pray for your ministry? Do you pray for your minister? Is he being held up by the prayers of his people? Or are you just trusting, eh, he's a spiritual one, he's got this. Because I guarantee he doesn't. And I guarantee he knows he doesn't. And I guarantee he is dependent on your prayers. And we look at our passage today, it's talking about praying without ceasing. And it's an interesting thing to think about. Like, obviously, we can't stay in this state of constant conscious prayer as we never do anything, right? I can't even take a step forward if, without running into the wall if I'm praying the whole time, right? Let alone drive. So when it's talking about this, it's talking about prayer more as habit, something we are in the practice of doing all the time, every chance we get, Okay. In between rejoicing and thankfulness, in this context of our passage today, the clues we get from the stuff around it is looking at prayer in some ways more as an attitude than an action. Now, by the way, that is not to diminish the importance and significance of a regular time set aside to intentionally and consciously pray. The act of prayer still needs to be a very important part of our faith. But in this passage, it's talking about it more as an attitude of always bringing things before God. So what we see illustrated in Ephesians 6.18. Okay, maybe you're familiar with this passage. At the end of the whole armor of God passage, Paul goes on to say, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, with, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Look at how often he uses the word all. Not a lot of room for exception there, right? All over the place. Uh, John MacArthur did a sermon on this uh, 10 or 15 years ago. It's on YouTube. I highly commend it. On prayer, using this passage as he was working through the book of Ephesians. And he actually went back to our passage in 1 Thessalonians as one of his supporting verses. And he said, what is this whole prayer without seeing? It says prayer all the time, all prayer, all times, all, for all the saints. What is, this, 
What does it look like? What does it mean to pray without ceasing? And his illustration was, what that means is I have the attitude that I am taking everything before God as life comes up. As, I'm, as I know I have a meeting coming up, you know, somebody wants to come and, you know, for counseling or whatever, I'm praying that God would bless that, use that. As I'm coming home to the family, I'm praying that God is using me to help shepherd my family and lead and disciple them. As I'm going to the grocery store, praying that God would open up witnessing opportunities or at least a chance to display Christ's character, etc., etc., that all circumstances are being brought before God in prayer. There are no ex- exceptions. Everything is involved in prayer. That's what he's getting at there. That we are, in the like manner, to be habitually, continually bringing all things before God in prayer. And then our third command there, we are finally told to give thanks in everything. Now, thankfulness is only mentioned a paltry 139 times in the Bible compared to the other two there. But when mentioned, what to be thanking God for, again, interesting to note, it is less for what he has done, although there are certainly plenty of times where saints are thanking God for what he has done, but more more of the time, it's thanking God for who he is. Give thanks to the Lord our God for his love endures forever. There's plenty of examples like that. Thank God because this is true about him. Thank God because that is true about him. Thank God because this is who he is. Above everything else, Our salvation flows out of who God is. We should thank God for who He is. Every blessing in our lives first flows out of who God is, or else we wouldn't have those blessings, or else we couldn't count on those blessings, or else those blessings wouldn't actually be for our good. It all starts with who God is, and we want to thank Him for that. Like prayer, we don't see many specific commands to give thanks in the Bible, again, outside of the Psalms, especially not many in the New Testament. Because, like prayer, it's assumed. It's what we do. And because there are so many examples of people doing so throughout the Bible. Again, Christians ought to be the most thankful people on earth, right? We have so much to be thankful for. If for no other reason, we're eternally grateful for the grace shown to us in sacrificing His Son for our salvation from sin through no work of our own. That all we need to do to be rescued from our sinful state and have an eternity to look forward to with our Creator is simple faith. That right there trumps everything else anybody else has to be thankful for on earth, right? So if we start from there, we of course should be more thankful than anybody else. And on top of that, we get grace upon grace day in and day out so much more than than we deserve. We could live the rest of our lives in impoverished squalor seeing everything we ever loved taken from us, and still ought to be the most thankful people on earth if we are in Christ. That's how much we have to be thankful for. And then, oh yeah, most of us have decent lives. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. So those are our three commands. Again, you guys have talked much, a lot about them the last several weeks. Hopefully most of that is review. But... As important as these these commands are, what really stands out about them here, what's uniting them in this context, is the frequency with which they are commanded. Take a look at our passage once more. Look at the modifiers on all three of those commands. Rejoice always. 
pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. Every one of those is just a different way of saying all the time. Pick up on that? Like, tick anybody, get anybody's radar antenna up when you were reading that passage? It should have. That's what unites them together. And by the way, in the original Greek, this is actually what is emphasized here. This was my clue. Oh yeah, this is what I ought to preach about because this is the way Paul and his buddies wrote it. They actually put all those modifiers in front of the command in all three cases. And in Greek, that's a way of hinting this is the important part I'm trying to emphasize. So in the Greek, it reads, always rejoice, unceasingly pray, in everything give thanks. They put that emphasis there that way. There's weight to the frequency more than the command itself. They're emphasizing this is supposed to be all the time. Like I said before, these are behaviors we kind of take for granted in Scripture. They don't even command them that often because they're so obviously what anyone who has experienced God's grace should do. So what's significant about mentioning them here is the exhortation to make sure that they are constant. That's why they're here. That's what you're supposed to take away from it. By the way, it's also emphasized by the fact that all three of these commands in the Greek are present tense imperatives. Present tense, just in Greek, in a a command like that, means something that is continuous or habitual action. It's not a one-time thing. You've got to keep doing it over and over and over again. So they're going out of their way, bending over backwards to emphasize the continuous nature of these. Always, without ceasing, in everything, means these are exhaustive in our lives through the good and the bad, that they are habitual, if not continual, throughout everything in our lives. And by the way, that means not just the religious functions like this where they're expected. That when we leave church, we are still rejoicing and praying and giving thanks. In our daily lives, when the mundane is all around us, when we're in our rut, our daily routine, we are still rejoicing and praying and giving thanks all the time. So how can we do this? How do we apply what's really being emphasized in this passage here? Well, as mentioned before, God's grace of being found in Christ makes these appropriate for all circumstances. If we keep coming back to that identity, we can't ignore that. To take this a step further, we can always do these because of the promise of Romans 8.28. You all know the passage. Says we know that God causes what? All things to work together for what? Good. For those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. Guys, all things means all things. It's not some trick of the Greek there or anything. No exceptions. There's no room for interpretation here. All things are being worked for good. And when it says good, it means good. It doesn't mean less bad than it could be. It doesn't mean that it's okay. It means they're all being worked together for good, even if we can't see how yet. So our attitude, here's the kicker, guys, our attitude ultimately comes down to our trust in God. When the terrible thing happens in life, And if you're new to Christ, I'm sorry, terrible things will still happen in life. Experienced saints, am I right? Okay, terrible things will still happen in life. And so the trick is, do I trust God that this terrible thing that I can't possibly see how it's good, 
is still being used for good by God who's in control of everything? Do I trust Him? Again, is my faith rooted in who He is? That trust that He means it when He says it's all for my good, even when I can't see it yet. Or do I secretly think that I'm God and it's not good unless I say so? That's what's really, be, that's what's really at play here when we're challenged to maintain these attitudes in all circumstances. So another way to apply our verse here and apply this verse to it is that all three of these are supposed to characterize Christians through everything, including the hardest times in life. Do you hate your job? Have you lost a loved one? Are you being persecuted for your faith? Well, no matter what, we can rejoice that we are identified in Christ, not by our circumstances. Those don't define us. I am not my circumstances. I am in Christ. We can pray for better circumstances, and we can pray for the faithfulness to use those circumstances as opportunities to witness the character of Christ in the meantime. And no matter what, we can thank God that we've been given whatever we have. Or if we lost something, be thankful for what we had when we had it. And, get this, we can also be thankful that we have the opportunity to prove God's character in difficult times by being faithful. You realize that? When we suffer, it's not that we have to suffer, it's we get to suffer. Because when we suffer, if we are in Christ and His character shines, it is a privilege that we are portraying Jesus Christ in a way that nobody else would have seen. If you're rich, living, in the best, living your best life now and nothing bad is happening, who's seeing Jesus Christ in that? They're just seeing a guy living his best life. But if you are in the worst tragedy of your life, and yet your faith still is sustained in Christ, yet you still trust that God is working for your good, you still will proclaim the good character of your God like Job in the midst of suffering. Oh, that's something real. The rest of the world can't do that. The rest of the world can be fine when they're living large. Only Christians can still praise God in the suffering. That's proving that our God is real, that our Savior actually makes a difference in our lives. And we are ultimately blessed, if not here somehow, at the very least, for all eternity, for suffering well in Christ. So again, I say, as hard as it is to believe that when the suffering is happening, trust that it's a privilege that you get to suffer. You don't have to suffer. You want to miss out, go ahead. Pray to God, please take away all the terrible things in my life. Because I'm more, again, I don't want to say this flippantly because I don't want to detract. Suffering is real. Suffering is painful. It's hard. But are you willing to throw away eternal rewards and blessings just for this little speck of existence to go a little smoother? Got to do the, the eternal math sometimes. And again, in the middle of that, it's not easy. 
That's why in chapter 4, when he was talking about suffering and people grieving, he was talking to the church and to comfort one another with these words, right? If I'm in the middle of the suffering, I'm going to have a really hard time remembering all these things. But if I have all my brothers and sisters around me building me up in my faith, then I got a prayer. That's all of our responsibility when the suffering happens, to be there and help build up that attitude. And so as powerful as that truth is, I don't want us to miss the grounding for it. Notice there in verse 18, it's God's will that is the grounding for all this. Look at that last purpose clause that explains why we're doing all three. For, it's a big clue word when you're reading Scripture. That means that we're going to tell you, explain why here now. For why are we supposed to do all three of these things? Why do we do these? Why do we rejoice, pray, give thanks at all, at all times? Because that's God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That's why. That's all we need to know to do it. Real quickly, it's important to clarify what we mean by God's will here because that, word, that term is used a few different ways. We're not talking here God's will in terms of sovereign decree. Okay, there's God's will that says everything he has decided, that kind of his will, is going to happen no matter what. We just don't know what it is except for what he's told us in Scripture. Okay, it's not saying that kind of God's will, or else that would be promising that we will always rejoice, always pray, always give thanks. And I don't know about you, but I failed at least five times today alone. So that would nullify Scripture if that was the case. No, this is instead, passages like this, though, we're talking about God's will in terms of desire. What would please God from the perspective of what he allows us to choose? Sometimes we please God by following his will in this latter sense. Sometimes we might displease him by not following what he's told us to do. But either way, he's still using everything to fulfill that other will, the decree, in the sense of his plan for human history. So in this passage, what it's saying is these are the things that God wants for us, but we may or may not be faithful. God's will, he wants his people to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, but we may or may not live up to that. I should also mention this is not an exhaustive statement of God's will for our lives. You all saw back at the beginning of chapter 4, said, for this is God's will for your lives. Do you remember? Your sanctification. That's part of God's will for our lives. It's a great place to start, by the way. And this is also a great place to start. There's many other things that can go under the umbrella of God's will, but these things we see here are an excellent place to get, to get going. How do I please God? What's his will? Here we go. How many times do we ask, what is God's will for my life? You ever been in that place or heard other people ask that question? How do I know what God's will is? What's his will for my life? What do I do, God? What's your will for me? What's your plan? All these things. Why won't he give me a sign? Well, here's your sign. Okay? God's will includes rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. It's not going to tell you which job to choose or what to eat for lunch or any of that stuff. But if we start from the things he does say are his will, we're going to get there. God's will has less to do with trying to figure out exactly what decision to make in every situation and more to do with how to represent Christ well in every situation. There's your answer. The more we think and act like Christ, by the way, the more our decisions are going to honor him. So then they will be going according to his will, right? 
His will, in the sense of what he wants us to do, it can always be defined as whatever honors Christ more. You're trying to figure out what job to take or where to move or who to marry and all these other major life decisions you have. Apply your biblical principles to the situation. Okay, which decision is going to honor God more? Which decision is going to represent Christ better? There's your answer. You're not going to get a neon sign. Okay? Figure out which honors Christ more. There's your answer. There's God's will. It's also significant, he notes, that this is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. And the way that phrase is placed in the Greek suggests it's God's will that is in Christ Jesus, that it's his will from within Christ Jesus that happens to be for us, not his will for those of us who happen to be in Christ Jesus, if that makes sense. Okay, but either way, it kind of works out about the same. The idea is this is the will, this overarching attitude, this is God's will, is the will that is in Christ, of which we get to be the recipients by being in Christ. The will that only comes through Christ, the will that logically comes from being in Christ, the will that is brought about through Christ and only applies because of what Christ did, that he would have a people rejoicing, praying, and thanking out in the world because of Christ. Okay, And that's important because this is not God's will for the unbelieving world. I know lots of people that think they're super spiritual and, and, and a re- religious because, oh, I'm a thankful person. I choose joy. I, all these things. I, I meditate. I send positive vibes. They don't like to use prayer. But that's not God's will for them. No, God's will... You know, they haven't experienced the same grace, so they can't do those things like we can. So his will, rather, is that they come to repentance, as we see from 2 Peter, right? You go ahead, go to the next one there. There we go. Lord's not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's his will. That's his wish for the rest of the world. None of the rest of it matters until that part gets figured out. So what do we do with this text? What is our takeaway, looking at these three together, all these things in some total? Only one real takeaway, and it's a pretty obvious one, stay rooted in Christ. It's that simple. That's really all it is. Now, I hate that this may sound obvious or simplistic to some people. Okay, what do I do with that? Duh, stay rooted in Christ, whatever. But you've got to remember, it's essential to remember this. Here's the hard part. You have to remember this all the time. That's the hard part. Every moment of every day, we have to work to remember that we are in Christ and see life through that lens. When I wake up in the morning, oh yeah, I'm in Christ. Let's live that way. When I go to work, No, I'm in Christ. I'm not just an employee of this company. I am in Christ representing him here at this company. When I'm parenting my children, no, this isn't just raising the kids I want. No, I am representing Christ because I am in Christ. So I need to make sure I represent him and how I parent these children. When I'm dealing with difficult people, I'm not just protecting myself and getting myself out of trouble. No, I can't just satisfy myself saying what's on my mind. I am in Christ. I need to remember that. When we experience great blessings, 
No, it's not time to kick our feet up. No, I'm still in Christ. These blessings came from Him, and I need to make sure I'm using them for His glory. Because we are in Christ, we are called to follow God's will in Christ for us, and that is to be people who are constantly rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks. Think what a witness that is to how important God is to us when we actually do this all the time. Think about, oh, I'm so afraid. I can't have these gospel conversations. I don't know how to witness to people. I'm so nervous having these conversations. Why don't you just start with rejoice, pray, and give thanks all the time? That shouldn't be all of our witnessing, but that should be a big chunk of it when Christ's character shows through us in all circumstances. Think what a witness this is, the life-changing power of Christ, when the world sees that we can hold these attitudes even in the most trying times. So you got this unbelieving coworker. You can't seem to make any gospel headway. They can't stand, can't stand Christianity. You can't really get a conversation started, whatever the case may be. But that coworker, he sees you rejoicing. Layoffs are coming, there's a lot of uncertainty, yet you're still rejoicing. Think that's going to get them to start thinking a little bit? How about that relative you've been witnessing to all these years? You love this sister or cousin or aunt or whoever all these years. You really want her to see Jesus. She knows what your faith is like, but she's not the least bit interested. But then something happens in your life and you're praying about it all the time. And you're testifying to the power of prayer. You're saying, you're sharing when God answers your prayers. Maybe that'll get our attention. How about your best friend who is just sick of hearing about the gospel? He's the most stout atheist you know, yet somehow you're still friends. But then he sees you being grateful for everything you have. He sees you endure a trial in life and somehow still thank God for it. You think that's not going to floor him? Brothers and sisters, this life is hard, but it's short. In light of eternity, we only have this blink before eternity comes. It's going to be over before we know it. We only get this twinkle of an eye to fulfill God's will by witnessing to a lost world. But these attitudes are not chores. They're not the, oh, what we have to do. They become what we get to do if we spend even a second contemplating all that we are and all that we have in Jesus Christ. They're a privilege, not a chore. These should be the natural consequence of living aware of Christ in our lives. That's what I mean by staying rooted in Christ. If we are living consciously aware of who we are in Christ, we can't help but rejoice and pray and give thanks. We don't have to put any conscious effort into it. It just happens. It spills out of living rooted in Christ. So really, it's only a matter of remembering Christ. And then we'll be faithful to do, the, do those three things. If we just remember, oh yeah, Jesus saved me. I liken this to, think about those of you who are married. Does anyone ever have to remind you that you're married? You ever go through the day 
and be like, oh, yeah, I had a, had a good day. Oh, I need to get home. I forget why. Oh, oh, yeah, I'm married. Spouse is expecting me. Does that ever, like, slip your mind? If it has, see Pastor Tim for counseling. We've got some other issues we've got to work out. But realistically, once you're married, that tends to stick with you, Right? Because that marriage has now become a fundamental reality of who you are. It affects everything about your life. It affects everything about who you are. It has now become a permanent part of your identity, right? No one's got to remind you. You live out that marriage because it's a part of who you are. You don't have to put conscious thought into, oh yeah, I'm married. What does that mean I should do? No, you do it because that's who you are. So, our relationship with Christ is more real than our marriage, has farther-reaching ramifications, and will affect us for all of eternity in a way that our marriage won't. So can we commit to just staying conscious of the most important thing in our lives and also maybe helping one another to do the same, encouraging one another as a body in Christ that, oh yeah, We're in Christ. And then you can't help but rejoice and pray and give thanks all the time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace in Christ. Father, we thank you that we cannot even begin to fathom the depth of of the riches of that grace. And yet, we see enough of what that is in our lives and more importantly, spelled out for us in your word that we can have lasting, enduring attitudes of thankfulness. We can come to you in prayer. We can rejoice at all times. We, We pray, Father, that you will remind us of who we are through your word, through the time we spend with you, through our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we may live out that identity in a lost and dying world that needs that same grace. Father, we pray that Christianity never is a chore. We pray that living out our faith is the overflow of who you've made us to be in Christ and that we can live in that joy, that our theology is shaping our practice and shaping who we are and how we live. I pray that for these brothers and sisters and all your children worshiping, gathered this morning all around the world, that we are growing into the image of Jesus Christ and representing him faithfully the world around us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.